episode 58, The French and Indian Wars. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. In this episode, we're going to look at a world-changing war that was started by a small Indian and colonial raid on a French patrol out in the backwoods of Pennsylvania. That Indian raid included a few members of the Virginia militia, including a 22-year-old lieutenant colonel named George Washington. This little raid was later described as the volley fired by a young Virginian in the backwoods of America that set the world on fire. Like I mentioned in the previous episodes, at the beginning of the 1700s, the 13 English colonies in America were beginning to develop a separate identity that was uniquely American rather than English. This was in part because of their shared religious and intellectual worldview and their experiences, and also because by the middle of the 1700s, a great number of people in the colonies had never actually been to Europe. They had been born there in the colonies. They had not come over from England or other parts of Europe. In fact, most of them had never been to Europe at all. In the mid-1700s, though, most colonists probably saw themselves as Virginians or Bostonians or Philadelphians rather than as Americans. Each colony had its own identity, its own government, its own constitution, and importantly, colonies were each beginning to form their own militias. There were also some detachments of actual British troops in places, particularly in the forts out on the frontier, where things were pretty wild. One of the reasons for the frontier forts was to protect important waterways, and really, this was more or less to keep the French from claiming these key spots. So these inland forts, supported by British and colonial militia troops, are about to become very important. Inland from the coast, there were a lot of places where the British and the French were competing for control of the same land and the same waterways. This included the Finger Lakes of upstate New York, the southern edges of the Great Lakes, also up along the St. Lawrence River and the Hudson River, and out on the west of Pennsylvania on the Ohio River, Monongahela River, and Allegheny River, and also just in the mountains of western Virginia. And all along the frontier, in every colony, there were tensions, not just with the French, but with the native Indian tribes. As settlers expanded westward, they inevitably ventured into Indian territory, and there were frequent clashes between settlers and Indians. Now, part of this tension was rooted in the concept of land ownership. Indian tribes had a sense of territory, as in, this is our tribe's territory, and your tribe needs to stay out of our territory but they did not have a sense of land ownership where an individual or a family staked out a plot of land and said, this is my land, I own it. They didn't have like things like deeds and records for who owned what. They just had a sense of territory. So this inevitably leads to tension as settlers would find land that to them seemed unoccupied, unsettled, and unclaimed. And so they would begin building houses and towns and sometimes forts in these places that seemed empty to them. But to the Indians, this was still part of their tribal territory, even if no one was actually living there. 
So in many cases, the settlers would set up shop on this sort of semi-empty land, and then later the Indians would come and raid the village or the home or the fort in an attempt to drive the settlers out. And then the settlers would organize a type of militia, and they would go back and attack the Indians themselves. And in places, this fighting was quite brutal. More on that in a minute. And although many of these Indian tribes had been decimated by European diseases, some tribes were still very strong, and they had the advantage of being quite at home out in the hills and woods. They knew the land better, and they were much more able to live off the land. But the settlers had, at first, the advantage of guns and horses, though, as we will see, that evened out pretty quickly. Also, out there in the frontier areas, there were a lot of French explorers and trappers who were hunting for animal hides, which were in high demand back in France. So the French wanted this land as well. So on the fringes of the American colonies, we have these three competing groups. The native Indian tribes, many of whom were also competing against one another. We have the English, and we have the French. So there you have the three combatants of the French and Indian War. The French, the Indians, and the English. Of course, it's named that, the French and Indian War, from the perspective of the English colonists, who, from their point of view, were fighting against the French and the Indians. And because the colonists eventually won the war, and they used the term French and Indian War, that's the term I'll use as well. Had the colonists not won, I suppose we would have a different name for this war. Well, the Iroquois, for example, called this the Beaver War. The Beaver War actually sounds pretty awesome to me. And honestly, I don't have very good information about which side the beavers were on, but I do know that Mr. Beaver was very excited to learn that Aslan was on the move. No, in all probability, the beavers were not on the side of the French because part of the French reason for wanting the territory was that they had created this substantial trade in animal hides, including beaver. And part of the intrigue of the war was that the French had a bunch of fur trappers out there in the woods, out in the boonies, who, like the Indians, knew the countryside really well, and they knew how to live off the land and fight out in the woods. These trappers, as well as many of the Indians, will become scouts for the French and English armies. So to put all this into perspective, the Beaver War was sort of a subset of the French and Indian War, and the French and Indian War was actually just one theater of a larger conflict between France, England, Spain, and some other European countries that was called the Seven Years' War. Now, they called it the Seven Years' War to distinguish it from the Thirty Years' War and the Hundred Years' War. Honestly, the Iroquois were much more colorful in naming their wars than the English were. We should have given the Iroquois a chance at World War I and World War II. They would have come up with some great name for that, like the War of the Metal Moose. In an interesting side note, though, Winston Churchill, of World War II fame, would later call the Seven Years' War the First World War. And that's because it does get fought by a bunch of different countries in a bunch of different places around the world. Europe, the Far East, the Oceans, and the New World. So Churchill's not wrong. It was kind of the first worldwide war. In the Beaver War, the Iroquois tribe fought against the French. The French allied themselves with the Hurons and the Algonquins, two other tribes. Now, the Iroquois were a large confederation of smaller tribes, and they controlled, in the late 1600s, a huge chunk of land west of the colonies. The Iroquois territory included western New York, western Pennsylvania, 
all of Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, and parts of Kentucky and Illinois. It was a really big territory. The Confederation included other tribes like the Mohawk, Oneida, Cayuga, and Seneca tribes, as well as smaller tribal groups. The Hurons lived along the St. Lawrence River in upper New York and Maine and had early contact with English settlers as well as French traders. The Algonquins were the tribes that were along the New England coast, and they and the Hurons had been pushed west by the English settlers, and now they were coming in conflict with the Iroquois tribes farther to the west. So the Beaver War was in part the Iroquois defending their territory, and in part a battle between the Indian tribes for who was going to be in control of the fur trade with Europe. The French, along with the Hurons and Algonquins, fought against the Iroquois. So the French gave guns and horses to their allies, the Hurons, the Algonquins. And knowing that this was going on, the English and the Dutch and some of the colonists gave guns and horses to the Iroquois. So we're, both sides are arming opposite sides of Indian tribes. It's important that these early battles were part of the reason that the Indian tribes actually had arms and horses. In the end, the Iroquois won the Beaver War, and they basically destroyed a lot of Algonquin tribes. In fact, the Iroquois were quite brutal in the way that they fought, leading to some of the standard colonial imagery of the Indians as brutal savages. You see some of this savagery described in William Fenimore Cooper's five-book series, The Leatherstocking Tales, which includes the famous novel The Last of the Mohicans. The Mohican tribe was part of the Algonquin tribe, one of the French allies, right? And they mostly ended up siding with the French, but the Mohicans in the book are on the English side. Cooper, who wrote these books in the early 1800s, did a fairly accurate job of describing the fighting between Indian tribes and describing life on the frontier. Cooper's first book, The Pioneer, is considered the first American novel. It was a big hit, both in the States and in Europe. Several of the books he wrote include pretty thorough descriptions of Indian life and include descriptions of the battles and describe some of the brutality of these inter-Indian battles. And you have to consider that he was writing to an 1800s audience, so he was probably underselling in his books just how violent and brutal things really, really were. Lots of villages were burned to the ground and all the inhabitants killed by both sides. And in the end, between the Beaver War and the French and Indian War, several Indian tribes were basically wiped out. In fact, the big part of the tension in the book, The Last of the Mohicans, is that two Indians, two Mohicans, Chingachgook and Uncas, are the last two surviving males of the Mohican tribe. And then one of them is killed, and the other becomes, well, the last of the Mohicans. I won't tell you which one, and you'll have to read it for yourself, or at least watch the Daniel Day-Lewis movie, which is pretty awesome as well. In addition to the end of the Mohicans, the Beaver Wars and the outpost fighting set up a long-standing enmity amongst the surviving tribes, and that led those tribes to be more willing to ally with the English or the French as they fight against each other. So there you have, again, the main protagonists. On the one side, the French, the Huron, and the Algonquins, and on the other side, the English, some American colonial militia, and the Iroquois, plus a few other smaller tribes. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of the conflict in the French and Indian War revolved around the forts that were out on the frontier. And honestly, frontier forts and their stories would make an amazing podcast in and of itself. 
because it's always out there on the edge of the wilderness where some crazy battles take place, whether it's Roman or Crusader or English Frontier Fort or, or Quezon. It's out there on the edge where all the action happens. So how did the French and Indian War itself get started? It had to do, of course, with a fort. In western Pennsylvania, there's two rivers that come together to form the Ohio River, which is a very important waterway because it eventually flows into the Mississippi River and eventually out into the Gulf of Mexico. So the Allegheny and the Monongahela River come together at a point and they form the Ohio. And that point is now Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. All three of these rivers are important for trade, and it's much easier to transport things quickly by river than it is to transport it over land. Whoever controlled the rivers controlled the trade. So the French built a fort called Fort Duchesne at the point where the rivers come together. It's right at the point right now in the middle of Pittsburgh. And that fort controlled all three waterways. But the English settlers of Pennsylvania and Virginia saw this not as French territory, but they saw it as their own territory, and they did not want the French controlling those important rivers. The Virginia militia, organized and trained by the British Army, sent out a patrol to survey this French fort. The Virginians and some Indians ambushed a French patrol, and this small battle started the larger war. That Virginia militia was under the command of a 22-year-old Virginia lieutenant colonel named George Washington. We'll probably hear a little bit more about him in some upcoming episodes. Anyway, Washington and a group of about 50 men, including several Indians from the Mingo tribe, were sent to go investigate Fort Duchesne. Now, the Mingos were actually an Algonquin tribe, and that tribe later on sides with the French, but the Mingos were known for being brutal and treacherous, and they frequently switched sides. But anyway, Washington and his scouts heard about a French patrol near the fort, and they ambushed that French patrol on the morning of May 28th, 1754. They killed many of the French, including their captain, and the captain's head was supposedly tomahawked in half by one of the Mingos. So now the war was on. From 1754 to 1758, four years, most of the battles centered around Fort Duchesne and Fort Ticonderoga, which was on the shore of Lake Champlain, one of the Finger Lakes in upstate New York. It's actually around this fort, Ticonderoga, that the action of the Last Mohicans takes place. Neither side had much success during these first four years, until 1758, when the British got serious and they sent several large armies to attack each fort and captured them both. British efforts were supported by the fact that the Royal Navy, back in England, back in Europe, had blockaded most of the French ports, keeping the French from sending any army reinforcements across the ocean. In 1759, the British advanced further and captured and occupied Quebec. And the French-speaking Canadians have been mad about this ever since. In 1760, the British captured Montreal as well, and then the French negotiated a surrender. And that gave most of the French lands of Canada to the British, and control of all the forts along the colonial frontier as well. Back in Europe, the British also defeated the French and the Spanish, mostly at sea, as part of the larger Seven Years' War. And on land in Europe, all the fighting that went on ended up in basically a stalemate. So the French and the Spanish were broke, and they couldn't continue fighting, so they were ready to sue for peace. 
The war was officially ended by the Treaty of Paris, which was conducted, of course, in Paris, in 1763. That treaty ceded all of the French territory east of the Mississippi to Great Britain. That's a big chunk of territory. It also gave the Spanish territory of Florida to the British in exchange for Spain getting to keep Cuba. So in the end, Britain was the clear winner of the Seven Years' War and of the French and Indian Wars. But the wars caused a great deal of debt for the British. And one of the ways that they planned to pay back these debts was by getting money out of the colonies. From a British perspective, this sort of made sense. They had put a lot of money and effort into defending the colonies from the French, and now they felt like the colonies should be paying that back. So, to get the money back, they began to impose an increasing number of new taxes on the North American colonies. Now, of course, the colonists, who had also spent some of their own money in the French and Indian War and had also sent their own militias to the battles, they did not like the additional taxes. And with every new tax, they sent back an official complaint to Parliament, who just did not listen. The complaints were valid and mostly consisted of the colonists saying, hey, the people back in Great Britain don't pay this tax. Why should we pay this tax? That seems to me a valid complaint. But Parliament kept on not listening and kept adding new taxes. And to the colonists, the fact that they could just be taxed in this way without having any voice at all in Parliament, no one listening to their complaints and no one advocating from their side, it began to create in the colonists a strong sense of injustice that's about to have some serious side effects. Well, back to the French and Indian War. Why did this short war matter today? How did this shape our modern world? Well, the Seven Years' War has been described, as I said, as the first world war in the sense that it was fought by European nations, but fought all over the world. And it does end up setting up European alliances and antagonisms that would last all the way to the First and Second World Wars of the 20th century. And also, the elimination of the French and Spanish as antagonists in North America basically meant that everything west of the English colonies, all the way out to the Pacific Ocean, was now fair game for expansion for those colonies. The French and Spanish were in no position to hold on to their remaining claims in the New World, and as settlers moved that way, they met no opposition from either European power. And this also meant for the Indian tribes in this area that they no longer had a powerful European ally anymore to help them resist the English settlers' westward expansion. This made the expansion of the eastern colonies even more rapid. A lot of Indian tribes were eventually destroyed or displaced by this expansion, and that's generally viewed today as a bad thing. However, before the European settlers, the Indian tribes were also involved in frequent battles amongst themselves, and these were bloody battles. Most of these battles between the Indian tribes are unrecorded because the Indians did not have written languages that have preserved their battles and their pieces. But we see evidences of these fierce enmities between the tribes in the colonists' records of the French and Indian Wars and in other early records, including James Fenimore Cooper's books. And it's clear that the tribes often fought amongst themselves. One simple contrarian way to see the Western expansion of the settlers compared to the claims of the Indian tribes is to say that the native Indian tribes simply met a bigger and better organized tribe that is the Europeans, that drove them out of their own territories, just like they themselves had driven out other tribes before them. 
And again, this was the way of the world back in the 1700s. That's what all the European powers were trying to do to each other all around the world. It goes all the way back to the Romans and beyond. That's what you did. You conquered your enemy and you took their land and resources. The idea that you should not take over your enemy's land and that you didn't have the right to just displace anyone at all that you could displace, that's a post-Enlightenment idea. And in the 1700s, it just wasn't even an idea at all. It's just not how anyone, settler or Indian, thought about their enemies or about territory back in the day. One of the other ways that this affects us today is that there's been this full pendulum swing in terms of people's opinion about who the good guys and bad guys are in terms of colonial settlement. And you've probably felt this a little bit as I've been describing the colonists unsettling and displacing the Indian tribes. It used to be that the Indians were portrayed as the bad guys, as wild savages. But now, however, if you look at modern depictions of the Indians, the Indians are portrayed as noble, peace-loving, and in tune with nature. And the European settlers are portrayed as greedy and destructive, and fundamentally wrong in what they did in their expansion. You can see this really graphically in the Disney movie Pocahontas. The white settlers are clearly the bad guys. The pendulum of public opinion has swung so far this way that the pilgrims, the pilgrims, who are clearly some of the most heroic people in all of history, are nowadays often portrayed as bad guys. I think a more balanced view would be that both sides, settlers and Indians, had good and bad people and took good and bad actions. Some of the settlers paid fair prices for land that the Indians sold to them willingly. Now, others did simply squat on land or took it by force, but that's also what the Indians had been doing to each other before that. Both sides fought pretty aggressively, and both sides committed atrocities, and both sides reneged on treaties. In the end, the European settlers won, and now, looking back on it, our current culture has chosen to condemn them for winning. Like I said, it's a full pendulum swing. And our current Western culture really seems to value being a victim. It's currently the way to gain social credibility, to be able to show that you're a member of some historically victimized group. In fact, there's a kind of perverse competition in Western society today as different groups try to prove that they are more poor, more persecuted, more oppressed, or more victimized than all the other groups. Nowadays, victim equals good guy, and successful equals bad guy. And all of this victimization mentality has been part of the pendulum swing of the modern world's opinion of what happened between the settlers and the Indians. Anyway, another way that the French and Indian War was important was that it had the effect of uniting the colonies as they fought together against a common enemy. The war was one of the first times that the colonies actually organized together, and you had things like Virginian militia, fighting in Pennsylvanian territory, and New Hampshire troops fighting in upstate New York, and separate colonies sending representatives to one another to other colonies to discuss mutual defense. It created a new network of cooperation among the colonies. And then one last thing about the French and Indian War and why it mattered. Many of the colonial militias were trained by British Army regulars, and many of the men who were the officers in those militias became the leaders of the American army during the War for Independence. This includes, of course, General George Washington, who by the time of the Revolutionary War was very well acquainted with British military strategy. 
But in the end, the real key result of the war was the substantial debt that Britain incurred fighting it. And then, as I said, the British Parliament decided to try to tax the colonies to make them pay for the war. They taxed a lot of things, including the colonists' tea. Now, they didn't tax tea back in Britain, only in the colonies. And this is going to make a lot of people very mad, and it's generally seen as a bad thing. Join us next episode in Boston as a group of settlers, dressed as Indians, decide to take matters and tea into their own hands. Next episode, we'll talk about the Boston Tea Party and also the shot heard round the world.